question to begin with. What is, um, how do you describe your identity? Your identity. You might say, you know, I'm British. Or you might say, I'm South African. I'm Aussie. Uh, you might say, I'm an American. You might say, then, some category underneath that, I'm a doctor, I'm a, a banker, I'm a physio, I'm a teacher, I'm a student. Then, somewhere around, you know, you, you identify with the characters, you know, I'm a dad, I'm a mum, I'm a son, I'm a daughter. But what is your identity, fundamentally? I mean, how would your colleagues, your friends, your family... Um, how would they describe you? Are you first and foremost the ambitious young professional? You know, the, the devoted dad, the hard-working mum? Peter, in this amazing letter to a struggling, persecuted and a dispersed church, as we'll see in a moment, calls Christians to stand firm. That's, if you like, the, the purpose of the letter. He states that right at the end in chapter 5, verse 12, if you want to look at there. But in standing firm, they're to do so, fundamentally identifying themselves as, we see in verse 1 of chapter 1, elect strangers. Elect strangers, now there's more than that, they're looking forward as elect strangers to a glory to come where they will no longer be strangers. What they're elect for. And we see that today will be an inheritance that will never perish, spoil or fade. But you kind of may be asking, why on earth is this going to be helpful to me today? I mean, we're in London in 2013. Has that really got any resonances with life in AD 60-odd under the you know, Emperor Nero in this area? Which is, you know, this is probably the, the time frame in which this letter was written, AD 62, 63. But you think about that time, okay? Nero um, had slaughtered thousands upon thousands of Christians at that point. Uh, I guess the persecution methods may be different today, a little bit more subtle, I guess. But there are, you know, there are no literal kind of lions arenas in the city of London outside your bank or whatever it may be. You're not going to get thrown there, but it's a pretty savage place, isn't it? A pretty hostile place as a Christian. And life itself is hard as well. The pain of loss, the struggles of illness, the isolation of kind of loneliness. The trials of life, they haven't dissipated in time, have they? They're still the same now as they were then. Think, you know, we may have managed things better today. Probably we deny things better today, I guess. But no person here will be able to escape the pain that life will inevitably bring at some point. And it's in those times of trial, of difficulty, of persecution, when the furnace of life heats up a bit, that who you are and who you lean on, who you trust in, that really matters, doesn't it, at those times? It mattered for a scattered church in AD 62, 63, and it matters for us today. And Peter says to elect strangers, stand Firm. Let me give you a bit of background to the letter, if I can, to, just to begin with, okay? 1 Peter, turn your eyes down to, to chapter 1, verse 1. You'll see there that it's a letter by Peter the Apostle. He, le- he later says in uh, chapter 5, verse 1, he's an eyewitness to the sufferings of Christ. See, that gives him authority. 
in what he's saying. But it also gives him a kind of an understanding that he has seen suffering in Christ. He's also seen himself. And he's, he understands it. He understands what they're facing. He mentions, as I, uh, he writes, sorry, as I mentioned, to, to a scattered church. Look at chapter 1, verse 1 again. You'll see the places that they've scattered to since Nero had come to power in AD 37. The pers- great persecution in Rome had begun and they scattered miles and miles away. The areas described in verse 1 are, is pretty much central and northern Turkey. So Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. But what does he write to them? Well, he reminds them at the beginning of their identity as these elect strangers. We'll come to what that is in just a moment, so don't panic. But chapters 1 and 2, they kind of map out for us what the persecuted Christians, what their identity was, how that is formed, and the hope that living with that identity can bring. Now, really, halfway through chapter 2 to the end of chapter 5, they're much more practical, kind of, and it spells out what life looks like as an elect stranger. Today we're just looking at the first 12 verses of chapter 1. Now, I said to someone earlier this week, I said, I wish I could only do the first two verses. There's so much in there. Um, We could have stayed there for a week of complete sermon, but we won't. We'll only be a short while. That's okay. But verses 1 and 2 are so packed that we're going to go to verse 1 to verse 12. But just turn to your outlines and let's have a look what we're going to cover, hopefully, today. Firstly, we're going to, we've got to see what an elect stranger really is. I guess we want to see, are we one? And what is one, more fundamentally? Those are the first two verses. Then in verses 3 to 5, we're going to look at the present comfort for the elect stranger. Secondly, in verses 6 to 8, we'll look at the, uh, sorry, the future hope, that is, uh, verse 3 to 5. Present comfort in verse 6 to um, 9. And then lastly, probably very briefly, Verse 10 to 12, we look at the past assurance for the elect stranger. Future hope, present comfort, past assurance. Firstly, though, let's unpack that. It's a fundamental identity that begins and frames this letter. The elect stranger. Look at verse 1 again. To God's elect strangers in the world. Imagine, if you will, you're writing to a Christian friend. You know they're struggling. How do you address them at the beginning of your letter? Be a bit more practical. You know, your home groups are now linked with uh, mission partners, aren't they? From around the world, we've got a number of mission partners. And um, you were asked, you know, particular mission partners are struggling at the moment, uh, going through a tough time. How would you address them at the beginning of that letter? Would it be sort of, you know, dear... Um, brother or sister in Christ. That's a bit of a Christian kind of way of putting it, isn't it? You know, dear friend. Or would you just say, dear Bob, or whatever they're called. Well, the first thing that Peter writes after his kind of very normal greeting at the beginning of the letter is, is one word in the Greek, and it just says, to God's elect. To God's elect. It's one word. Strange that, maybe. I want to say a bit about what that means in a moment. But firstly note, if you can, that Peter doesn't hide away from weighty matters. See, fundamental to Peter's strategy to encourage a struggling, persecuted, dispersed church, fundamental to that strategy to encourage them is teaching um, a strength of weightiness. 
to show who they are before God. And he doesn't actually pick the easiest doctrine, though, does he? He doesn't say, you are loved by God. He says, you're elect. It's weighty, isn't it? Now, I I think what we can take from that is there's no shortcut uh, to strength and growth as a Christian. People are always looking for kind of spiritual crash diets, aren't they? To get kind of spiritually healthy before God. But the only way to lasting growth is, is through standing firm in weighty understanding of who we are and what God has done for us. To God's elect, Peter begins his letter. Now think about what election is. We know what election is as in in terms of a local by-election or a general election. But election in in the Bible's terminology is this, is, is that Christians are those who have been chosen by God for salvation since the beginning of time. Now sadly, and often this is somewhat overlooked, by Christians today and and, and many, because it it seems to, only seems to, deny the independence of someone's will and mind. And saying, you know, I've not chosen anything. God has elected me. I'm kind of a bystander in this. Therefore, in our culture, far too often, Christians have kind of moved on or tried to water down this amazingly precious doctrine of election. But it's interesting, isn't it? Peter puts it here, front and centre. And not only that, to use a kind of of phrase of someone who's not here today, he kind of takes it to the next level. In verse 2, I mean, look at it. It's quite amazing. We see the origin of our election in the foreknowledge of God. You see that down there? We see the experience of our election in that sanctifying work of the Spirit. I'll come to what these are in a moment. And we see the joy or the purpose of our election in that life that is obedient to Christ. So as Christians, we're elect if we are a Christian. But I want to bring those two things together now. He says, and then you're strangers in the world. Do you see that one? Elect strangers. He actually calls Christians later in chapter 2 verse 11, aliens of all things. And in old versions of the Bible, in the King James Version, for example, it described Christians, not, it did say the word aliens or strangers. It said, you're peculiar. And look around. It's probably right. And if it isn't obvious at first glance, it ought to be after a short while. Because, you see, Christians live for a different purpose. Uh, that we have different goals. We have different desires. Our hopes and longings are very different to those who you work in the office with. Now, the thing is, they're defined by a different world and a different king. And there's a good warning here, I guess, uh, not in this passage, but a warning of if you don't feel an alien, if you don't feel a stranger, if you don't feel peculiar in this world, I don't mean you have to dress all strange or anything like that, but you, you know what I mean. If your values are so different, if they're not, be warned. And there's a character in 2 Timothy 4 called Demas in 2 Timothy 4.10 who, who basically vanished into the world because he loved the world so much. That ought not to be the case for us. Christians are aliens, strangers, it says here. We follow Jesus in his ways. 
and not the desires of our hearts because he knows better than we know our own hearts. He knows what we need better than we know. We trust him in that as we follow him in his word. But Peter wants to connect these two great weighty truths right at the beginning of his letter. It's it's strange. He says you're elect strangers. Essentially saying you're chosen, rejected ones. And you've got to get that the right way round. And if you don't, you get yourself in a heap of trouble. See, as Christians, our fundamental identity is not rejected. Though we may feel that as you go out after work with your mates. Because they're doing one thing and you're, you're saying, no, I, I want to follow Christ. I want to do it this way. And that actually should be great assurance that you know God's infinite love and you have been called, you have been elected. It demonstrates that you are a stranger in this world and you're waiting for the next. So we've been chosen, you see, to be rejected. The rejected follows the choosing. It's got to be that way around. And if you don't get it that way around, it just leads to utter despair. You see, if your fundamental identity in this world is just the fact that you're rejected by so many people around you because of your ethical and moral framework in your life, then you're going to be without hope the whole time and you're probably your default be to go back the way of the world, everywhere else, every way, the way that everyone else is going. You'll soon lose hope. No, Christians, you are elect strangers. It's got to be that way around. And Peter wants to, that kind of identity to kind of Consume it, to, uh, in it, to engulf you, because then you'll begin to see and fathom the, the depths of God's love for you. And you see that in this passage. Let me just run you through that first, second verse, if I can, to show you how God's love actually consumes the elect stranger. Notice first, it's behind you. That is in the past, in that foreknowledge of God, before the beginning of time, That foreknowledge of God is that initiating love of God which calls Christians to him. All Christians here will be able to um, demonstrate and, and to speak about how they have been called by God. That foreknowledge, that understanding of who you are and initiating love brings us to know God himself and we respond to him. So God's love is in the past, it's behind us in the foreknowledge of God, it's in us in the present. Look at that, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. How does that work? It works through the Word. As we read the Word, the Spirit works to transform us and make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ, cleansing us, sanctifying us. It's behind us, it's in us, and it's also in front of us in the future, that we may obey Christ in our lives with purpose and infinite joy. For the whole of eternity. Do you see how much God loves you? God loves you infinitely in time. In the past. In the present and the future. But he also loves us infinitely in himself. And this this blew my mind this week. Do you see it? Because it's the Father's foreknowledge. It's the Spirit's sanctifying work. And it's the Son's obedience to the Son that brings us purpose and joy. God, you see, in the entirety of time and in the entirety of himself has been poured out in love for the suffering elect stranger like you and me. If you're a Christian today, why? Well, 1 Peter is going to show us so that we might stand firm. 
And that is why Peter says at the end of verse 2, grace and peace be yours in abundance, if you haven't quite got it already. That is grace, that undeserved infinite kindness from God and ultimate contentment are for the elect stranger, he says. They're for you. Grace and peace be yours in abundance so that you might stand firm. We need to know more, though, and hence we come to verse 3. If you cast your eyes down there, let me read again, and we'll look at the future hope of the elect stranger. Verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, through, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Given the time we have, I haven't got really enough time to go into every sort of bit of detail in these verses, but did you notice that phrase, a living hope? A living hope. We all have hope, don't we? In some way or another. I remember hope of trying to be picked for the school football team many years ago. It was you know, a tense moment at some point. You, know, you hope for all sorts of things. The hope to be asked out on a first date or the hope for the first job or the, the grades at university. The hope of getting the good job or maybe the hopes are just kind of clinging on. I hope that the marriage will hold together. I hope that this relationship won't falter. We all have hope, don't we? But what happens when hopes fade? Generally, I think what we do is we replace them, don't we, with other hopes in our lives. We, we, we put other things in place because it's a sad point, is it, isn't it, when, when someone says, I have no hope. If you've ever been with someone who's, who's near death, there, there can be a point where physically they're strong enough to, to hold on, but they just say, I, I have no hope. And they kind of let go. You see, hope is kind of necessary, isn't it, for our well-being. It makes actions, it makes our choices worthwhile. It's interesting, just think doctrinally, hell is a place where there is no hope, isn't it? None at all. Dante was right, wasn't he, when he said, Abandon hope, all you who enter here. Speaking of hell. But the hopes that I have, maybe they're different to you. I don't, my hopes are littered with a kind of, maybe, not sure. Let me give you an example. I'm going to watch Match of the Day 2 tonight, as I always do, slightly religiously. And um, there will be a hope in my mind that says, I hope I don't consume a litre of ice cream. Let's just keep it to a few spoonfuls if you possibly can. That's my kind of a little hope. But the problem is there's a, there's a sense of improbability about that, if you know anything about my ice cream consumption on a Sunday evening. You know, I might be disciplined, but I may not be. I hope that I might be disciplined, otherwise I'd be regretting it sometime about three o'clock in the morning, but I may not be. And in the Bible, there is that kind of hope as well, with that kind of improbability to it. I'm not sure, it may, I hope that that happens, but there's also another kind of hope, and it's a certain hope. And that's what we see here. And it's a certain hope because it's a living hope hope. That is, the foundation on which this hope is based is certain and unfailing and never changing. 
See, the hope that we have as elect strangers in this world is established, as we see here, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That historically verified occurrence in his, you know, in a number of years ago. It is therefore not a feeling. It is not an emotion. It is a power. But it is, but it is a living truth. I want to just follow the logic. I'm going to go through these verses very quickly. Follow with me. Verse 3. We praise God, it says, because he's given us a new birth. Yeah, this is speaking of elect strangers. So Christians, those who've been chosen before the beginning of time, strangers in this world waiting for the next. We've been given a new birth. That is new life, eternal life through Jesus' death on the cross. That new life brings us, as it said, notice the word into in verse three and at the beginning of verse four. Really critical here brings us into this living hope known to the elect stranger today and forevermore. So then we go on to hope's object, which is the inheritance of verse 4. Notice that. So new birth brings us into a living hope and then into an inheritance. Do you get the idea? Brings us into two things. New birth brings us into two things. So what's the hope of the elect stranger? Let me summarise this whole section if I can. It's a living hope. Because the one who's established, um, it is not dead. It is a perfect hope. Because the object of the hope will not perish. See, no decay, that is. It will never spoil. That is, not be polluted by sin. And it will never fade. It's beauty will go on forever. So it's a living hope, it's a perfect hope, it's a ready hope. You see it's kept in heaven for us. It's ready right now. We don't have to sit around here and wait. We are aliens here. We are waiting to go home and home is ready. It's kept in heaven for us. And it's a guaranteed hope. So it's kept in heaven for us, but we are kept for it. Do you notice that? There's a kind of, in, in verse 5, it flips it around the other way. We're kept for that inheritance in heaven, shielded by God's power. Do you see that? And it's a future hope. We see that in verse 5. It's been revealed, and it will be ultimately revealed in the last times. But now we have this foretaste. We know what it looks like. We know what we're to enjoy. We have this foretaste now, but it's going to be infinitely greater and better. So elect strangers, we have a living hope, secured essentially in the gospel of Jesus Christ, sustained by faith in that gospel. But how should we respond? Well, I think verse 3 is the obvious response, isn't it? Go back to it. It's a praise. There's rejoicing there as well. And praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Elect strangers, we have hopes and dreams. I guess, think, what are your hopes now? Think of them. You may be thinking, you know, I want that particular place to live or that particular job or that particular relationship, a husband or wife. Maybe you want health or children. There's nothing wrong with those kind of hopes in our lives. But do note they will all perish. They will all spoil and they will all fade. So you see, if our lives are fundamentally identified with such hopes, then we will perish, spoil and fade. Now, elect strangers, we're to have this living hope. 
Uh, the future is certain, and we live in the certainty of that future right now, today. But the reality is sometimes quite hard, isn't it? And that's why the next section is really, really helpful. Because life can be quite tough. And we see that because there's present comfort for the elect stranger in verses 6 to 9. Look at verse 6 with me again, if you can, very quickly. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Suffering and trials, I mean... It's one of the most popular arguments. I've just done a recent CE course. And, you know, it's one of those big arguments, isn't it, from non-Christians against the Christian faith. Now, I'm going to speak more on this next term. I'm going to tell you more about that on Tuesday night at the prayer meeting. But I'll speak from this passage, I think. But an argument basically goes like this from non-Christians to Christians. It says this. If God allows evil and suffering to continue because he can't stop it, then he might be a good God, but he can't be all-powerful if he can't stop the evil and suffering in this world. On the other hand, if God allows evil and suffering to continue, and he, and he could stop it, but he won't stop it, then he might be all-powerful, but he can't be good. And a non-Christian will come to us and say, well, either way, the, a God can't be good and all-powerful which is what the Bible would state. And often that kind of thinking um, is one of the ways we can, even as Christians, respond to kind of trials and suffering in our own lives. The result is we, we kind of retreat from God. We kind of, you know, suffering happens, we say, oh, God, can you really be good if you're allowing this to happen? Or can you really be all-powerful if, if you allow this to happen to me? What Peter's doing here is providing a number of reasons to say why actually Christians can praise God for the living hope they have, even though they may find themselves in an absolutely awful and very difficult situation, facing trials of many kinds. So three quick reasons why we can do that and why this is present comfort for the elect stranger. Firstly, you notice that suffering, it's just for a time. It's transient, isn't it? Look at it in verse 6. A little while. We imagine that might be, you know, I'm just going to nip down to the pub for a little while. I'll see you in there in a bit, yeah? Okay, give me a pint if you can. That's what we imagine it. Well, Peter's speaking of a life. That's what he's saying. A little while is a life. But you see why? When you have a living hope, in faith we begin to see kind of eternity before us. And that seems just like a little while. Our life then is just like a breath. Paul describes his... um, uh, life his, and the trials in his life in 2 Corinthians 4 is light and momentary afflictions. See, the eyes of faith see into eternity and they exercise hope, which is a comfort to the elect stranger. You just say, it's a little while. It's just a little while. And if you struggle to believe that now, in 10 billion years you'll think it was a breath suffering is just a little while secondly uh, present pressures they do produce faith because trials stretch us don't they when you get knocked about a bit whether that's suffering issues of health persecution friends mocking you at work it puts a bit of backbone into your faith doesn't it when that happens 
The amazing thing that we see here is that our faith prepares us to live in hope, but also our hope that pushes us uh, you know, onto the future, even when lives, our life is quite a struggle, a trial. That hope deepens our faith. It works both ways. And thirdly, the rewards are amazing, and they begin now. Look at verse 7, if you can. These have come, that is the trial, so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. He's saying gold perishes in fire. Faith is proved genuine in the heat and the pressures and the trials of this life. So when you go through a difficult time, and you will if you're not now, do remember the reward now is that we have this genuine eternal faith that is proved certain through these trials. But the trials are breath. It's only a little while. The point is, whatever we, so we can therefore say, whatever that pain or trial, look at verse 8, isn't this brilliant? Though we have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And are filled with that inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith. That is the salvation of your souls. Which is the glory of Christ. Which verse 7 speaks about. Lastly then, thirdly. The past assurance for the elect stranger. I really don't have the time to go into this in any detail. But note in in verse 11 that the Old Testament prophets, they were pointing to, they did the work, if you like, so that we might know uh, the Messiah and who he was and how he had to suffer to save. We see it now because of their clear work. We see that in Christ that he had to suffer to save us and that we have to then take up our crosses and follow him, as Mark Mark 8 says. So you see, there's past assurance for the elect stranger, as we know that when Christ died, his suffering is for our glory. That's what the prophet spoke of. Isaiah 53 would be a great thing to look at this evening. But turn to verse 12 if you can. I want to spend a tiny bit moment on that to finish. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. I'm sorry, our time is kind of up, but just one word I want you to look at in verse 12, if I can. And that is the word long. Even angels long to look into these things. really struck me, kind of jumped out at me when I was looking at this earlier in the week. That word is actually, in the Greek, it basically means to lust. Angels lust. Don't mean it in the, they just can't get enough of these things. They never tire of looking in to what is it? Well, all that the prophets pointed towards, that the suffering Messiah had to do that to save. Well, it's the gospel. The amazing thing I was looking at here, Jesus didn't die for angels. He died for you and for me. And this living hope that endures trials of many kinds, that fills us with this inexpressible and glorious joy, this is the hope that Christ actually had for us. A living hope. And and that is the gospel. 
The point is, you are his living hope. When you are perfectly restored and beautified, glorified in his arms, that is the hope that he was willing to come and suffer and die for you on a cross for. And the thought that you are his living hope will make him your living hope. Because he went through everything for you. He went through the ultimate trial, the ultimate suffering, physically and psychologically on a biggest scale that you can possibly imagine. And he did it for you. And that is what the angels long, lust for, can't get enough of. That gospel message that Jesus Christ has a living hope and that hope is for you. And he was willing to die and suffer for you in order that you might have a living hope in him. Look into the gospel again and again and again for the assurance. So that, verse 8, though you do not see him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And after that breath that is our lives, just that little while, well, our griefs will be turned to gold. They'll be refined, glorified, made beautiful. But because Jesus walked into the ultimate suffering for each one of us, You can be sure today, present comfort, that whatever you're facing, he knows what you're feeling. He knows how difficult it is. He's faced it in an infinitely more and greater way. And he's walking with you in it and through it. However hard it may be, he is there with you, the elect stranger. And so what do we need to do? Stand firm. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for the assurance in this passage that uh, though life may be difficult at times, we have a living hope, a hope that is steadfast and certain, as our great hymn says, because it is founded in the Lord Jesus Christ who has gone through the curtain and is touching, is sat at the throne. Lord, we are secure in you. We are elected in your saving and powerful work on the cross. And though we may feel at times peculiar in this world, help us look forward to a world to come where you are king. And a world which is Not strange, not alien in any way, but is home. We long for that time, but now as we live, help us live with a living hope in Jesus Christ. Amen.